Welcome to Innovations in Education. I'm your host, David Adams, CEO of the Urban Assembly. And on this show, we bring guests every single episode who have made things work in public education. This show is about the innovators. This show is about the folks who are solving problems. This show is about making things work in education. Now, there's a lot of shows out there talking about what's wrong in the education systems, and those are great shows. There's some shows talking about what we're not doing well, and there's a lot to learn from those, but that's not this show. This show is going to be featuring educators who are making things work for young people and improving public education. Well, good afternoon. This is Innovations in Education with David Adams, and I'm here with our inaugural guest, Dr. Misha Porter. Misha is the inaugural president and CEO of the Bronx Community Foundation. She was previously the chancellor of the New York City Department of Education, the largest school system in the nation. She's responsible for educating 1.1 million students in over 1,600 schools. Prior to taking the role as chancellor, she most recently served as the Bronx Executive Superintendent, where she was deeply invested in sharpening schools' leaders' equity lens and building collaborative practices across schools. Dr. Porter also served as a superintendent for Community School District 11, the principal of the Bronx School for Law, Government, and Justice, and Urban Assembly School. And during her tenure at LGJ, Dr. Porter served as the community coordinator, internship coordinator, and taught English before becoming an assistant principal. During her tenure in LGJ, Dr. Porter served as the community coordinator, internship coordinator, and taught English before becoming an assistant principal and then taking the helm as principal in 2004. Having worked her way up through the ranks, she is exceedingly aware of the challenges city schools and communities face and has dedicated her life to improving the learning environment for all students. Dr. Porter, it is a pleasure to welcome you here to the show, Innovations in Education. It is so good to be here with you, David, my friend. So excited. Well, uh, we read this bio and we have a little bit of a sense of where you've come up with, but nobody tells your story better than you. Would you tell us a little bit about your educational history, how you've come through the ranks and how you've come to the position that you are here today? Sure. So I think most people know I was born and raised in South Jamaica, Queens and moved to the Bronx when I was 17 and went to public schools my entire life in, in New York City. And so I feel like sometimes I spent my whole life in school absent this moment. And, you know, just being a New York City public school student always kind of fed what was as a New York City public school educator. Like I just often thought about how, you know, anything that was happening in education, whether it was exams I was taking, leadership moves I was making, how those decisions would have landed on me as a young person in the school system. And so I, I stayed very connected to like being a kid of this system as I led in this system and also just really, you know, loved school and had amazing experiences and, and some not so amazing, right? Like, so I come from teachers who believed in me, saw my potential, sort of quirks about me. I was always the kid that talked too much. And there, te there were teachers who saw that and were like, you're going to do this great thing because you're going to use this, this power, the power of your voice in amazing ways. And then there were other folks in education, you know, I, I majored in plumbing in high school. It was a very tracked system when I went okay. to school. So when I was in high school, all of the students in like the shop classes went to regular classes. There was no access to AP or honors. It was just a decision that was made. And in 12th grade, my English teacher 
saw some potential in me and was like, you should be an honest English. Like you, mm-hmm. you really belong there and changed my program and put me in honest English. And because I was famous in high school. <laughs> for and being famous a, now. The, yeah, thank you. Thank you, David. You're very welcome. Famous, famous for being one of the two girls in the plumbing shop. So I was a little known. <laughs> My English teacher knew right away that I was in shop and she was like, aren't you one of the plumbing girls? And so I'm feeling good about it. Like, you know, I'm famous. Yeah. Um, But she really wanted to know because what she was saying was like, you don't belong here. I hear you. And changed my program. And that was the first time I had to advocate for myself as a student in school and, and ultimately got back in, did really well. She ultimately gave me an award at graduation, I think, to, you know, assuage her guilt But those experiences, both positive and negative, just taught me what young people needed from us as a system. I think the other thing about my story is if that teacher had her druthers about me, I don't know who I would have been, right? I wasn't the kid she expected me to be. And and I don't think that she would have ever thought that one day I would lead the largest school system in the country. And so people in our schools make decisions about young people that could be life-changing and altering. Um, So, yeah, so I, I, you know, as an educator, I just really lean into those experiences and think about often how things would have landed on me and my own lived experience as a student in New York City. Well, let's, let's pick up on this notion of advocacy. It is a 25th year anniversary for the Urban Assembly, mm-hmm. um, and you had a large part to play in creating the Urban Assembly. Would you tell me a little bit about what it means to advocate for your community, to put education as a central aspect of what it means to, to bring justice, and the role that you play and continue to play in building schools that meet the needs of young people? Yeah, so wow, 25 years, my God. And it, it's so funny because the way I came to the Urban Assembly was advocating for our community. And so, you know, I met Richard Kahn when I was 17 and working with a youth group in the Bronx. And and there was this plan to create a, what they call Bronx Centers, the 300 square block redevelopment project in the South Bronx. And the idea was to build a new criminal courthouse, a new Yankee Stadium, a mall, some retail and housing. And we were just the young people at that time. We were like, we don't need another courthouse and more jails. We need schools. And at that time in the Bronx, you know, that was pre the small schools movement, right? Like New Visions had just done their first round of schools, but there weren't many. And so in the Bronx, you had mega schools, you had Taft, you had Roosevelt, you had Kennedy, you had Evand, right? So you had the big mega schools in the Bronx. Richard saw us and saw me one day at a meeting and was like, you should get more involved in this process. And so, you know, one of the things that I think is so powerful about my personal lived experiences, I remember sitting in a room in Lincoln Hospital in a meeting room and seeing the line for a school for criminal justice, which ultimately became the Bronx School for Law, Government and Justice, the first urban assembly school. And seeing that line in a book, but also realizing it like in reality. And so it taught me a lot about the power of the people, the power of advocacy and the the power really of like leveraging your voice that could turn into something that is tangible and present and visible. So, you know, I think when we talk about the power of the people, we talk about this notion of hope, the notion of elevating folks' voice to improve the system. 
You know that we talk about this notion that the, the graduation rate at the time that the Bronx School for Law, Government, and Justice was started was 47% across New York City. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I, I'm really inspired by is, is folks did not believe it could do anything better. The system couldn't get any better. Folks were just like, this is New York City. We don't graduate kids. That's just the way it is. But it really was the energies of folks like you, folks like Richard Kahn, folks like David Banks, folks like New Visions, Joe Klein, who believed that the system could do better. And it wasn't perfect and it's not perfect. Tell me a little bit about the role of inspiration, Mm. the role of hope in bringing energy to a system. Inspiration, hope, and I'll add possibility. Right. Mm -hmm. It it was also a time when people didn't believe people in the Bronx graduated. Right. Right. LGJ started in District 7, moved to District 9, the poorest congressional district in the country, probably the lowest graduation rates in the city were in those neighborhoods. The city as a whole, right, like a neighborhood in the Bronx. And, you know, I think from my experiences with the youth group and the things we were able to do and the way people just believed in me personally, And at a young age, helped me to see what we could do for young people. I am so proud, David, of the young people who've come out of LGJ and the amazing things they're doing in the world as adults. You know, it it is just amazing. And it was because they knew we believed in them and we would go to the, we would go to to wars for them, right? Like LGJ has a building. Because we took our kid downtown yeah. to meet with the mayor and advocate at City Hall. And yeah. so we gave them agency around advocating for themselves, right? It wasn't just like Misha, David, and Richard are going to go have these power meetings, which happened, right? But it was also our families and our students, like to this day, kids, families, parents who went to LGJ, the seniors from the senior center who were part of the planning team feel ownership of that building. You know, ownership of that school. And I think there's a real thing when you create something tangible that you can see, that you can feel, that you can touch and watch like generations of young people. I call myself a grand principal. I have kids of LGJ graduates who are going to LGJ now. And I think the other powerful thing about LGJ is LGJ in 25 years has had three leaders. Mm-hmm. They've been for seven years, me for 11 years, Joanne for right the rest of it. And all from within, all from grown leadership who understand the why that that building and that school exists. Champions That's- of the charge. Absolutely. Champions of the charge. Collectively helping all realize greatness every day. Yes. And you know, even that, right? Like that's our, our jam, but like young people came up with that. I remember when we were thinking mm-hmm. that through mm-hmm. and a kid, one of the students said to me, can you really realize greatness every day? Every like day. let's really think that through. Yeah. And we were like, heck, yeah, yes, every single day. It doesn't have to be big greatness. It's just got to be like your greatness. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and this is the last thing I'll say on that is one of the things that to me is most important in education for leaders and teachers and, and the folks that serve is to see the possibility and potential in every young person. Mm-hmm. And the way my English teacher didn't see it in me, mm-hmm. but right, like, you have to look at young people and not allow their zip codes. And, and I know this is cliche to determine their destiny, but to look at young people and just see, like, to see their, their, their raw talent and what that absolutely could turn into. 
What yeah. kind of voice could that turn into? You talked a little bit, Misha, about this notion of buildings. And I want to revisit one of the key things that your tenure as chancellor was really known for, which is reopening schools. And so when we talk about this idea of hope, when we talk about greatness revisited, we talk about buildings, mm-hmm. right? Places. Tell me a little bit about what it meant to reopen New York City schools for educators, for parents, for the promise of public education. You know, I, as you know, served most of my career in the Bronx. And none of us in our general lifetime ever thought we would experience a pandemic that would shut our city down. Yeah. But what we all knew is that if someone asked the question 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and said, this is going to happen. First, we want to believe but let's pretend we believe them. And they said, where in New York City do you think it's going to hit the hardest? Like, what, yeah. What's the community we need to worry about? And we probably would have named a bunch of for Rockaway, mm-hmm. um, South Jamaica, you know, at that time, probably Red Hook, Brooklyn. But we would have only said the Bronx as a collective. We yes. wouldn't have just no, identified neighborhoods. People would have said those neighborhoods across the city and said, and the Bronx. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I knew that my borough and the young people in my borough were hit the hardest, right? Access to Wi-Fi. We have the most Wi-Fi deserts in New York City and the Bronx. Mm. The most people living in temporary housing. The most people live in doubled up, right? Like that's a reality for the Bronx. Yes. And so when I became chancellor, I knew school was the center of life for many, many folks in, in the borough nice. and, and in communities like the Bronx across New York City. Mm-hmm. And I knew we had to reopen and we had to do it safely, right? Because it, it, this is a scary time. We, we didn't understand this thing. We had to do it safely. And we and lost folks, right? We, lo- we lost folks like everywhere. You yeah. know, I, I'll tell you, David, the hardest part of the pandemic, one of the hardest parts for me personally, was the daily emails about death. Yeah. Right? Like my email was, I, I can't imagine, right? Like what the chancellor at the time, but as executive superintendent, my email was flooded with death daily. Yes. Yes. And so I knew why people were afraid. I was afraid, you know? Yes. I was afraid for my own family. But I also knew that we had to get back. We had to begin to rebuild that sense of normalcy. Mm-hmm. right? Which school was, rebuild those connections. And we've talked about it a lot, right? Like it wasn't about, and as I say this, like with all due respect to education, it wasn't about just getting kids back to English and math. Mm-hmm. It was about getting them reconnected to their communities. It was about building social relationships. It was about seeing their teachers. It was about getting back in classrooms. It was about reconnecting to activities, getting back into the arts. Mm-hmm. It was all of those things and doing ELA and math and science and social things, right? But it was all of those things that I knew young people needed. And so my priority was to open. And I said it over and over again, my priorities are one in three, open, open, open. Right. Open schools up is immediately open up an amazing summer program that reaches far and wide like no other. And open in September to bring our babies back to school. Mm -hmm. They needed us to do that for them. Well, let's stick on that a little bit, if you wouldn't mind. I know you've talked about what it means to, to invest in public education. I know 
you talked a lot about what the federal investment in public education meant in terms of trust mm -hmm. in the public school systems. Take me a little bit more deeply around reopening mm. trust and what it means to invest in a public school system that is trusted by the folks who are served by it. Back to school, like we themed around homecoming. Yeah. Right? Because, you know, it was important that we create a celebration around coming back, right? That we build welcoming environments and systems around welcoming people back. It was important that we had open houses so parents can walk through and see windows opened and closed. Yeah. And, and, you know, bathrooms worked and, you know, what social distancing was going to look like, right? Like, so it was, there were big things and there were small things, but there was also this idea of really celebrating homecoming and bringing young people back in a way in which, because they were afraid too, mm -hmm. right? They were afraid. It, it, the funny thing is we had all these debates about masks and how we were going to get kids to keep their masks on. I think that was the least problem we had mm -hmm. with getting kids to wear masks. Mm -hmm. They wanted to come to school so bad. I think if they had to wear masks, hazmat suits, right? Like they would have been all in just yeah. to go back to school. And so, you know, we we really had to build, you know, community and trust and open our doors so families could see, so young people could see, so teachers could see yeah. that, you know, we were going to take every safety precaution necessary to bring them back, to bring them back safely, and that they could trust and believe in us. I remember the lines on the first day of school with the kids doing the health screeners. And to your point, I mean, uh, especially our high schoolers, man, they were excited. Mm -hmm. They were excited to be in school. They're excited to see their friends. They're excited to see their teachers. And I don't know that I've ever had a first day of school with that much excitement, with that much energy. And they were long lines, Misha. So mm -hmm. long lines were like in two, three hours of, of kids trying to get the, the health screeners fixed and everything like that. And they're like, you know, we're going to school and uh, it's worth it. Yep. Yep. And they were, you know, I got to go to every borough that first week back yeah. and get to a bunch of schools. And the hardest part was we wanted to hug. Everybody wanted to hug. We just wanted to hug each other. <laughs> we couldn't. But... You know, it was it was it was just a joyous time and it, it was the right thing and it's what communities needed. <laughs> when we talk about the right thing, I like to think about what it means to improve public education. Mm -hmm. We know that energy is important, but also innovation. Yes. Shows called innovations in education. Tell me a little bit about what kind of innovations it took to reopen and what we learned from the pandemic that's going to help us innovate in the public education space moving forward. Well, I think coming back, we had to innovate around space. Yes. Time, schedules, programs, right? But I have greater hopes for us as a system, you know? I want to see us innovate around time and how we use time. I want to see us really innovate and integrate technology, right? I feel like we learned, you and I, we've talked about this, you're a little younger than me, David. Barely. Barely, thank you. I wanted you to make sure you said that. <laughs> when we were in school, technology was like these big Mac computers in a room. And then when we became teachers, it became smart boards and laptop cards. That's a thing. But what we learned in the pandemic was a 21st century technology 
was about the student, the teacher, the device working together. Mm-hmm. And so I want to see us really innovate and incorporate technology in real and exciting ways in our classrooms mm-hmm. and really innovate around the student experience. You know, young people can Google the answer to most anything. Yes. Right. And I'd love to see us have this conversation with young people around, you did that, right? You did the homeschool tablet thing. Now you're back. Mm -hmm. What around that experience versus this experience? Like, you know, my friend Chris Enden created the Collider Classroom, right? Yes. That 20, like what do spaces and places look like? In New York City, we don't have a lot of land to build on. So how do we innovate spaces that we build for schools and, and build up and build outdoor spaces for young people? And so I, I, I'm just really excited and, and hopeful, but also worried that, one, systems want to get back to normal, mm-hmm. right? And normal wasn't good for too many communities. And I think this is the moment where from the, the federal government to the local school building, we should be thinking about what actually is school mm-hmm. now, what school should be, and how are we going to innovate forward around leveraging technology, mm-hmm. student time and experience, and how are we going to innovate around recruitment because we're losing teachers, right? How are we going to change this job yeah. of teaching and learning in service of building a greater, stronger workforce of mm-hmm. teachers in our schools, right? There's so much we had to do, pivot to do so quickly. Now let's actually take the time to pivot thoughtfully and carefully. What you said about some of the, the opportunities around technology and the workforce, I like to think about at the Urban Assembly, problems to solve. We have a strategic priority to make things work. And I feel like sometimes in the education system, we kind of like whip ourselves a lot. You know, we got to be doing better. We're not serving every child. But I wonder what it would look like if we just saw these things as problems to solve for. Mm-hmm. Like, what would it look like to have graduation rates in the Bronx that were consistent with the rest of the city? And what kind of systems would, would we need to do to develop that? What would it look like to reinvest young people back into the public education space after the issues of COVID and the concerns of those outcomes? What would it look like to, as you're saying, really integrate technology one more time into service of young people? Because I think looking at the outcomes of remote learning, we can be sure that whatever we tried was not the most effective way to getting there. Right. I want to get back to the Bronx if we could. You are the inaugural president and CEO of the Bronx Community Foundation. What does it mean to be moving from the education space to the foundation space for you? And what experiences are you taking from education to uplifting your Bronx, your community, your borough as the president and CEO of the Bronx Community Foundation? Well, you know, This was not a hard decision for me to make, to take this job on. I've been a champion and a cheerleader for the Bronx for a long time. Folks know I love the Bronx, right? Like that's very true. do. Yeah. But I didn't start there. Mm. When I moved here, when I moved to the Bronx from Queens, I was scared because the Bronx has had a perpetuated story about the borough, around crime, around danger, around... You know, the whole narrative around the Bronx is burning, right? And so I think that that is also connected to the Bronx being the brownest borough in New York City, mm-hmm. right? And so one of the things that I tackled when I became an executive superintendent and the superintendent of D11 was 
you know, we tried a lot of things, right? We've tried a lot of programs and initiatives. What haven't we thought about? And what I started to think about was we haven't talked about race. We haven't talked about the role that the Bronx plays as the brownest borough in New York City with it being okay mm-hmm. in the Bronx for people, for it to be the highest poverty community, right? To have the poorest congressional district, to have the most students in need of food, right? Like all of those things have been okay for a very long time mm-hmm. or been accepted as mm-hmm. well as the Bronx. Right. And for me, it, it, that is unacceptable, right? It is just completely unacceptable. And so, you know, I really challenged us to think about, you know, what's our responsibility to this borough? And I came to the greatest responsibility was to retell the Bronx tale and reshape the narrative of the borough. And we did that. The graduation rates increased in the borough, outgrew, not outperformed, but outpaced the growth than, than any other borough in the city. Mm-hmm. And, and that is something that I hold with great pride. Mm-hmm. But I also came to the foundation because I thought that it is important to redefine what success means and how we see ourselves as successful, right? Mm-hmm. Many people thought I should have done a lot of things different, right? Like folks even said to me, like, you're too big to go back to the Bronx. Mm. But in fact, I'm not, right? <laughs> if the people in the Bronx didn't believe in me, follow my crazy, right? Like, say, I don't know, it's something about what she's saying that we get and, and like, we're going to do it. And we get yeah. like, graduation rates at LGJ continue to grow and, like, they're doing amazing work. Mm-hmm. The, the District 11, the district where I was superintendent, right, continues to grow. And the borough continues to grow. Mm-hmm. And because of that work there, did anybody ever looked at me as chancellor? Now, no one expected the pandemic numbers to be different than they are in terms of data outcomes for students. Right. No one expected anything different, right? We were in a state of emergency as a world, not just New York City. Right. People were grappling through the hardest times in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so I challenge school systems across the country and leadership across the country to not lean into the narrative of what the test scores are telling us. We could have told that story without the scores. Mm-hmm. But leaning into the narrative of, again, like how do we redefine and redesign the student experience in school. What should 21st century teaching and learning be? We need to create thought leaders. We need to create innovators. We need to create builders, right? That's what we need to create. And a single score and a single experience does not create that. And so what are we going to do with that information and how are we going to leverage it differently and not use it to penalize systems to create false narratives around communities and and false narratives around children that sort them like I was sorted into categories of who belongs where. Mm -hmm. As you know, I'm deeply resonant with that vision. You know, I I like to think as I'm listening to you, as you came into education because you wanted to build your community and then you've come back to your community in order to support it and elevate it and continue the path of growth that you started so many years ago. 
if I could just tag on to this notion, when you look at the Bronx and you look at the Bronx Foundation, how do you see the education system propelling that growth? Going no, back I, 25 years ago there, Dr. Porter. I think school is the center of community, period, right? Like, I think it is the center. What we learned in the pandemic was the school system was not prepared to solve the problems that need to be solved immediately, mm -hmm. right? But it was community-based organizations. It was partners who stepped up, got devices quicker to families than we could, got Wi-Fi quicker to families than we could, got food, knew who was hungry, right? Like, and so I think what the foundation has an opportunity to do as it relates specifically to education is to be a convener mm -hmm. of partnerships around schools that build school as the center of the community and what role do we all play in it from the bodega owner yeah. to the nonprofit. Listen, what my bodega in the Bronx down yeah. the block from LGJ on 163rd and Grant, right? At 820, nobody got a bacon, egg, and cheese. Right. Once they knew class started. Right. Right. And so how do we build this space of, of school and how can the foundation play a role in convening community stakeholders around school as the center and an investment in our young people in defining new ways to partner? The idea of partnering is something that's really important to me. I think there is a narrative sometimes, and you talk about the narrative about the Bronx, but there's also a narrative from some parents that the only way to partner with schools is to ensure that some of their kids go to some places and other kids don't. And I just wanted to elevate how we think about and your vision, and, and I think a shared vision, the promise of all schools. So if you could just share how we think about this notion of mm -hmm. elevating all schools and what inspires you mm -hmm. about the promise of public schooling for all young people. You know, the job of the education system has got to be to make sure every kid in every community has a great school to go to every single day. Mm -hmm. It is not the job of the system, like I said, to sort people into categories, right? Like my mom was a single mom. Mm -hmm. We were poor. We were on welfare. Like we, every ill that you could have, we've had, and yet I'm here. And yet. I've been able to accomplish my brothers and sisters, like in our own rights, right? In different spaces, we've been able to accomplish things. Yeah. And so if we lean into a system that starts sorting and dividing kids, then we're already predicting a promise that your journey should be very different than my journey, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that that is a backward way of approaching education. We don't have enough schools and classrooms in this city to sort all of the kids who we think belong in these categories, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Our responsibility has to be to build great schools in every single community. You should not have to. No one should. That's right. You should not have to travel to two and a half hours. I visited the best schools in New York City. And I've heard young people talk about struggling socially, emotionally, right? Pressure, right? Like not owning their own learning, not, not having a voice. And then I've been in other places that we don't highlight and we've been in them together, right? Mm -hmm. David, the Unison School, of course, LGJ all day, right? Like yeah. we've been in so many of them together where young people have voice and have agency and 
know how to process their feelings and are thinking and talking about their future. Do they deserve something different? They deserve great teachers in every single classroom, right? Putting all one type, I don't even know what the type is, of kid into one place, it limits their potential and their opportunity to engage differently. And so, you know, we feel very much the same in these moments, right? Yes, yes, we do. We have to cultivate a system that cultivates young people as learners and thinkers and thought leaders and lets them pick the path that they want to take. But we cannot create a system that sorts kids and further segregates our school system. We have to be really careful. We're, we're walking a really fine line in this moment in education in New York City. You said something, Dr. Porter, that's so powerful to me. And we at the Urban Assembly stand ready to help invest in the city where every single school is a great school, where every single school is a high quality school, where students are known, where learning environments are strong, where teachers are investing in the growth of young people and the millions of Dr. Porters are, are sitting there waiting to be discovered, mm-hmm. right? And I believe that, you know, my own child attended a Title I school and both of my kids were graduating in terms of elementary school from that space. And I believe in that school, not because of the demographics, but because of the teaching and learning and yeah. the quality of education that my young two children, Elijah and Isaiah, received. So deeply resonant with that. And speaking of solving problems, right, it's just a problem to solve. Problem to solve, yeah. And we go, we talk to parents and, and we recognize their concerns and we're not maybe there yet, but as folks like you, as, as president, folks like the Urban Assembly, folks like New Visions, folks like Outward Bound, folks across the city who want to make a better system. So I just want to, I want to really recognize the vision that you've laid out there and, and resonate with that as the CEO of the Urban Assembly. Yeah. And you know, like we perpetuated a thing that isn't true. And so we can't be mad at parents who say, I want more of this thing. Yeah, Because we've said that this is the thing that's the pathway out. We haven't made the promise and the commitment to say that actually the way out is an education. And we're going to make sure whether your kid goes across the street or two train stops away or crosses a bridge into another borough, that your child is going to get a great education in any place, in any school in New York City that they go to, because that's that's our responsibility to them. And, and who are our partners to help make that happen in every community? And just going back to your tenure at the Bronx School for Law, Government, and Justice, I remember you said presence is leadership. And your job during the day was to be present, checking on kids, checking on teachers. And then after, after work, you know, you doubled down and you answered your emails. I want to come back to this notion of innovation at scale. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously we've got great principals, we've got great teachers. What are some ways that we could think about scaling those incentives? One of the things I've been concerned about is when we emphasize sorting, the innovation comes from identifying the best ways to get the best students into our schools, rather than the innovation coming from how to serve the kids that we have, the kids that deserve our our support. So just talk to me a little bit about innovation at scale, summarizing the ways that you thought about taking your experience in the Bronx and bringing it to the rest of the city. Yeah, I read your piece this weekend and you said it, you talked about, you know, what are the people doing if you put all the best players on one team, right? Mm -hmm. Like how are you coaching them up, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, I think how you take things to scale is you really invest the time in studying mm. the problem being solved. Yes. Right? 
Yes. You study the problem that's being solved so that you can identify what parts are replicable, right? But then what parts are replicable, replicable from LGJ to Bronx Academy of Letters, but what about Bronx Academy of Letters is unique <laughs> and, and needs to massage the replication. Yes. And so I think that innovation at scale is important. I think we have to just identify what is the innovation we want to replicate? What do we want to scale up and what scales up easily, right? Like we know leadership matters. It matters who leads our schools. Yes. It matters who's in front of our children. Yes. And what are the qualities of those leaders, right? I also think this is a moment for us to stop as a system and say, people like you, David, and I, we have the time to do it, right? Like, you know, the system doesn't have the time to stop and do it, right? Mm -hmm. But we need to solve for what should every school have, regardless yeah. of where it is, right? Yes. Regardless of what community and neighbor it sits in. What should every school have and how do we make sure they have it? And then you get into, right, like that, that to me is like a scale thing, right? Right. At scale, every school should have arts programming, after school programming, should have social emotional supports, social worker, guidance counselors to support. We're in a different time and place. Mm -hmm. It has to look different. It's not teachers and students and principals anymore. It is a whole wraparound experience for students that we have to now reimagine and reimagine at scale. And so deciding first what every school should have. I think that that's that that balance between flexibility and consistency, yeah. right? And it goes back to this notion that a parent should know that when they enroll their young person in a New York City public school, they're getting a level of consistency, but also flexibility to their own needs and their own yeah. kind of ideas. And and that, I think, is the balance. And that's the balance that leaders go through, that we're here to support. But that really is the balance that dictates what quality schools look like in New York City and beyond. And for me, the biggest thing that I want to challenge us to think about is how do we redefine the student experience? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? And how do we engage and involve them? When young people spent two years being able to mute the teacher, cut the camera off, yeah. and like, right? Like, I'm here, but I'm not. Right. <laughs> Right. right, right. How do we re-engage them? And, and what does that mean for the largest school system in the country to do that at scale? Right. And it means some common things, but yeah. then it means some very community specific things that there mm -hmm. has to be room. And so I think we, we have to strike that balance between, again, like at scale, what should every school have? Mm -hmm. And then what is unique by community that you add on to that? Well, Dr. Porter, I want to leave us with a, a question for you. Our show is called Innovations in Education. And I want to think about over your entire educational history, what's the innovation mm. in education that has had the most impact on your thinking about teaching and learning? What is the, the one thing that you learned, that you innovated? What, what problem did you solve that has really transformed your thinking about teaching and learning? I think it was allowing teachers to have a leading voice in decision making at the school level period, right? Like the most important work that happens in school happens between kids and teachers in classrooms. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, creating the space for teachers to have voice in the decision-making at school, what curriculum we use, mm. right? To own and lead the classrooms, which they're going to do anyway, close the door, right? Right. But 
but valuing that as a community, right? You know, we created teacher leaders across the district in 11 when, when I was superintendent. And so I've always, you know, prioritized leaning into teacher voice as the space of innovation because they are most connected to what learning looks like and, and how young people experience learning. And so I think that's an important pathway forward for our systems when teachers are thinking about how to redesign the student experience mm-hmm. and how do we lean into that and teachers as leaders in our system so that we don't lose the best talent in our classrooms, but we retain that talent in our classrooms because we're giving them space to grow and giving them ways to see a pathway as a teacher, you know, to, to grow and to, you know, have greater experiences. Teacher leadership is the innovation and education for Dr. Misha Porter. Misha, we're very proud of you. We thank you for the energies that you've put into New York City and beyond and making all schools high quality on behalf of our young people. We continue to honor the work that you're doing in the Bronx, and we look forward to hearing great things for you as you continue your career. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me be a part of this special moment for the Urban Assembly. Thank you, Dr. Porter. Thanks. Thanks for listening to our latest episode of Innovations in Education, where we bring education leaders who have made things work in the education sector. If you like this episode, please subscribe so that you can hear more great content around innovations in education. I've been your host, David Adams. Have a great day.